From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a podcast that focuses on current news in the Texas veterinary profession. I'm your host, Audrea Wood. Today on the podcast, we talk to Trent Hightower, TVMA's General Counsel and Director of Government Relations about the upcoming legislative session. I'm Trent Hightower. I'm the General Counsel and Director of Government Relations for TVMA. So what legislative issues will TVMA be focusing on this session? Yeah, so we've got several that our Government Relations Committee has put on our plate to start lobbying for. Um, And then there's always some stuff that we've got to keep our eyes out uh, for for things that would be bad legislation to to argue against. I guess first on the, the four column, one of the big things we're working on is the Rural Veterinarian Incentive Program, or RVIP. Um, this is the piece of legislation that uh, TVMA got passed last session to kind of modernize an old program in statute that is designed to provide loan repayment relief for veterinarians who agree to practice for a certain number of years in underserved areas. Um, those are defined as counties of under 100,000 people. Um, so last session, whenever that that legislation was was updated, um, it was updated to include Texas Tech University uh, School of Veterinary Medicine graduates. Um, when it was drafted back in the 90s, it only applied to A&M because that was the only vet school in Texas. Um, they also updated it in 2021 to allow certain out-of-state veterinarians take advantage of that program, but only if they had previous ties to Texas. Um, and they defined that as going to high school or undergraduate here in here in the state. So one thing that, that we're gonna be looking at doing is expanding eligibility. Um, when our government relations committee met, they, they had a big discussion about this and essentially decided if we're trying to address a shortage, let's cast a wide net and let anybody who wants to come to these shortage areas practice if they meet certain qualifications. Um, so we'll be filing something to expand eligibility to any licensed veterinarian within four years of, of them being licensed. So that hopefully is something that can can go a long way toward, or at least go some way toward alleviating some of these shortages in, in certain parts of the state. Um, on that program, we're also going to be looking at uh, possibly having to fix some, some timelines. That program was funded for the first time ever last session. Uh, it received a million dollars in funding from the federal uh, COVID relief funds that came to Texas. Um one issue there is the the timelines for when that money has to be obligated and spent don't necessarily line up between the federal requirements and the state ones. So we're probably going to have to look at something to, to fix those just to make sure that that money gets to be used for the intended purpose. In regards to the Rural Veterinary Incentive Program, you said the goal is to cast a wider net. Am I understanding correctly that veterinarians with no ties to Texas could take advantage of this program? That is true. As long as they are, if, if they come here and get licensed and they've done so within four years of graduating, um, if our bill were to become law, that would that would make them eligible for that program. Um, another thing we're looking at is the Texas Radiation Advisory Board. This is a state commission that is responsible for overseeing the use of radiation across all professions and, and uses in Texas. Um, even though veterinarians do use radiation pretty extensively in their practice. They are not represented on this board by name. Several human healthcare professions are, and there is a seat on this commission that is reserved for um, an agricultural representative. We kind of got to looking and we don't really know of any other 
anyone else who would be involved in agriculture who would use radiation other than a veterinarian. So what we're, we're looking at is making sure that that seat for agriculture is, is held by a, a licensed veterinarian so that the, the profession's interests are represented on that board when rules and policies are made about how these, these things can be used. Um, another one we're looking at is some sort of zoning relief for large and mixed animal practices. This is in response to uh, members who have said that they've found themselves having difficulty establishing a large or mixed animal practice in certain parts of the state. Typically, we're looking at areas that were previously more rural and they're kind of urbanizing. What we're seeing in some parts of the state is cities, whenever they expand their city limits um, and they start developing neighborhoods and subdivisions in these areas, they will restrict what people can use their land for in those areas. So one of the things that they've looked at restricting in some places is saying you can't establish a larger mixed animal practice here. Um, usually it's justified in a basis of perceived issues with smells or sounds or that sort of thing. Um, so what we're doing is we're looking at something that would say um, cities would not be allowed to restrict business owners from starting this kind of practice in these areas. And it's it's something that kind of plays along with the kind of a bigger theme that's going on in the legislature right now. There have been uh, debates and bills in the House Agriculture Committee about something called the right to farm. And kind of basically it's the same thing that's going on with, with veterinary clinics, just in terms of traditional agricultural practices, you know, farming and ranching and that sort of thing. Um, some cities, as they've expanded, they've told landowners, you can no longer do these agricultural things you've been doing with your land, sometimes for generations. Um, and so that is something the House Ag Committee is working on, on fixing. And we're hoping to kind of work with them on that to kind of parallel that with with the large animal practice idea or even you know become part of that bigger bill if we can make that happen. Um, another issue that that practitioners have been frustrated with for many years on, on multiple levels is kind of how the, the complaint process goes at the state board when someone files a complaint against them. Um, last session, uh, TVMA was able to get a bill passed that hopefully alleviates some of that, that those issues. Um, what that bill did in 2021 is it says that once the board has investigated a complaint against you, um, they are required to give the veterinarian a copy of the medical review that was performed in their case at least 14 days before they conduct their hearing on that matter. Um, that's hopefully going to help a lot just because the complaint oftentimes is kind of pretty raw uh, stream of consciousness information from a lay person who aren't really alleging a clear violation of any kind of rule just because they're not really knowledgeable about what the rules are and, and how veterinarians are supposed to practice. Um, when you get that medical review, though, that's something that has been filtered through a veterinarian. They've reviewed your records. They've reviewed the complaint. And hopefully at that point, you're receiving some sort of notice from the board stating this is actually what we're um, looking at, at you possibly having violated. Um, so that we're kind of looking at seeing if there's any way we can further improve that process. One thing that we're taking a look at is maybe trying to alleviate some of the backlog from the state board. Right now, they're about a year and a half behind on dealing with cases that have of complaints. Um, we're looking at seeing if there's some way maybe we could alleviate that by giving them some more discretion to dismiss cases early in the process if they're frivolous or if they just don't allege any kind of violation of the rules. Um, or at the very least, we're looking at something that would give veterinarians uh, the right to not produce, have to produce any kind of response in their case unless they've already been given that um, 
that medical review and know exactly what is being alleged against them. So we're just still working on that, trying to figure out how we could best uh, improve that process. There's recently been some activity at the board level itself um, in terms of how they're going to start handling evidence and looking at some of these cases once they get to cases that were filed uh, when this new law was in effect. So we're hoping that some of this kind of will, will become better on its own in the future, but we're also just looking for ways we can continue to improve that process. Now, as far as the TBVME complaint process, is the standard procedure published anywhere so veterinarians will know what to expect? So the the bulk of it is is out there. It's in the in the board's rules in in chapter I believe five seventy five or five seventy three of the the board's rules. Um, you know, kind of laying out the things like the timelines and and when you can do certain things and when you must respond and all that stuff. It's something that is not in alignment with other professions. Um, when it comes to uh, possibly having liability for having to pay a plaintiff's attorney's fees in a lawsuit, um, doctors, for example, medical doctors are not subject to that kind of uh, provision in the law, but there is a, a statute that says if uh, an animal, if a livestock animal is injured or, or lost while being treated by a veterinarian and the owner sues the, the veterinarian due to that loss or injury and prevails, the veterinarian could be liable to pay the plaintiff's attorney's fees. Um, and that's something that is not in alignment with other professions. You know, usually if you're performing within the course of your business, um, you might be liable for some sort of loss or damage or malpractice even, but attorney's fees typically aren't on the table as something that you'd have to pay. Um, One problem that a statute like this creates is it can kind of create a situation where the other side's attorney may not be incentivized to negotiate any kind of settlement with you if they can kind of drag the the case out and eventually win and then put the, the defendant doctor on, on, make them responsible for the attorney's fees. Okay. Did this come about due to something that happened recently? I'm, I'm not aware of any uh, specific cases that have invoked this provision. It's just kind of one of those things that's on the books and it's, it's troubling that it's there. Um, I know TVMA has tried in the past to get this repealed in a couple of sessions. Um, you know, we, we don't really want anybody to be the, the poster child for this case where they've lost an animal and then end up having to pay a plaintiff's attorney's fees. Um, so we're hoping to get that removed before it, it negatively impacts someone. The the last one that I've got that's on our list of things that we're going to be out there promoting actively, um, you know, kind of on an offensive front, uh, deals with procedure restrictions by cities. Um, this is something we've seen uh, kind of across the state. Certain municipalities will pass an ordinance that says that you can't perform certain procedures, even if they're something that's considered to be within the standard of care uh, professionally. Um, historically, you know, this is things like uh, cat declawing is kind of a, one of the biggest ones, possibly, you know, tail docking, ear docking, that sort of thing. Um, it creates a, a lot of uncertainty out in the public. You know, I know here in Austin, the, the Austin City Council has passed such an ordinance. So you can't get a cat declawed in, in the city of Austin, for example, but you can go right up the road to Round Rock or Buda or Kyle or Cedar Park and, and you can get the same procedure done there, no problem. Um, so we'll be looking at some sort of, of bill that will create just statewide uniformity and certainty, where if there's a procedure that's considered within the standard of care uh, by veterinarians, then it should be illegal to, to, to perform that procedure no matter where in the state you are. What issues are we looking at that could negatively affect the profession? So there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we don't, we can have control over what we file. We don't have any control over what other people might file. So we have to just kind of monitor every piece of legislation as it's filed and, and see if it affects us. 
Um, that said, we do know that there are certain things kind of out in the world as uh, possibilities for things that can negatively impact the profession. And then there's certain things that just kind of come up every session. Uh, they just kind of tend to always wear their ugly heads. Um, one of the, the issues right now that's kind of being driven by a new story um, is possible overreaction or possible reaction to a major kennel fire that happened in Georgetown last September. Um, that made a lot of news statewide. It was a very sad story where a kennel had a fire and about 75 pets were, were lost in that fire. Um, it was not at a vet clinic, um, but we just want to make sure that if there's any kind of response legislation in, in response to that, that, that tragedy, um, we want to make sure that it doesn't wrap up veterinary clinics and, for instance, require vet clinics to have very expensive uh, fire monitoring and suppression systems. Um, there was a bill on this filed last, last year after the fire. This was during the third special session, so it never went anywhere. It was not something the governor had put on his agenda, but it was still filed um, by a representative up in Williamson County where the, the fire happened. Um, that bill did exclude veterinary clinics and shelters specifically. It would have only applied to to kennels. Um, but that is something that if it gets filed and and it starts going places, we're going to really have to take a, a hard look at how it impacts veterinarians or could possibly impact veterinarians. And we really just kind of want to work with the sponsors and, and the legislators working on this to, to be a part of some sort of driving some sort of solution that could help the kennel situation without overburdening uh, veterinarians with these expensive uh, add-ons to their clinics. Another issue that we just kind of always keep an eye out for is increased lawsuit liability for non-economic damages. Um, you know, right now, the way it works in Texas and most states is, is pets are considered property. So if something happens to, to your pet, someone does something to, to injure or, or, or even kill your pet, um, really the only damages that you're entitled to are, are lost property damages. So the value of the animal, um, you're not entitled to sentimental damages or emotional damages, uh, like you would, for instance, you know, when a, something happens to a person. Um, and one reason for this is, you know, it's, it would substantially increase the cost of care if that liability was, was that much higher for emotional or, or sentimental damages. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where, you know, Really sad news stories can kind of drive some bad legislation um, and I think be well-intentioned. Um, you know, we've seen some news pieces about, you know, kind of not necessarily in a veterinarian context, but just kind of out in the world where one person's dog may injure or, or kill another person's dog. Um, and then the the person with the injured or, or, or killed dog isn't able to really recover anything for that loss. Um, one thing that we've got to keep an eye out for is to make sure that, you know, stories like that don't drive some sort of mo movement to where um, veterinarians are, are exposed to increased liability when it comes to, to working on their patients. Another one that, that kind of comes up fairly often, this is one that, that really um, manifested a few sessions ago during the fight over the prescription monitoring program, is just general cases where um, concepts and, and ideas that are make sense when applied to human medicine or healthcare um, they don't really make sense in a veterinarian context, you know, and so with the prescription monitoring program, for example, there really wasn't any evidence that, that people were abusing, uh, prescriptions for their pets, um, in terms of gaining access to opio opioids that they shouldn't have. Um, but still there was a perceived avenue for diversion there through, through veterinarians. Um, and so there was a, a very strong movement to do something to, to further re regulate, how veterinarians prescribe and prescribe those medications.
Um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, it's kind of, it, oh, sorry. Um, there's kind of several other issues where or areas where that could come up, um, you know, applying something that makes sense in a human context, things like, uh, you know, mandatory cruelty reporting, you know, most veterinarians are going to report cruelty when they see it. Um, but if you make it mandatory, you kind of put them in this bind where they don't, no, they don't want to get in trouble for not reporting something. So you might have a tendency to over-report. Um, and then you're dealing with animals. So it's harder to, to really know what happened to that, that patient. Um, and then again, the, the non-economic damages issue, you know, it makes sense to have an element of non-economic sentimental damages when you're talking about a human being. Um, but it doesn't quite make as much sense when we're talking about a person or about an animal. Sorry. <laughs> what are your expectations for this upcoming session and how can our members get involved? Um, you know, our, our plan is to, to protect the profession from bad legislation, uh, you know, get some of these priority items passed. Um, you know, you never know what's going to take up all the oxygen in the room once the legislature meets. You know, last session, we thought it was going to be all about COVID. And then the big freeze happened and everything was about the freeze and a lot of stuff didn't get through because that's what the, the legislature was busy with. So you just kind of have to go with the flow and see what what opportunities present themselves and, and what opportunities you can make to, to make something happen. Um, as far as getting involved, one big way that, that our membership can get involved is to participate in our Capital Visitation Day. Um, that is coming up on February 1st of 2023. Um, what that's going to entail is we're going to meet, we're going to go around and meet with as many of the legislators as we can, talk to as many of their staffers as we can, um, just basically introduce ourselves, let them know, hey, the, the veterinarians care about the profession. They have issues that are going to be coming across your desk and and we're here to answer questions and be a resource if, if you have any questions about any of that stuff. Um, so I think that's one big way we can really utilize our membership to, to get our message through early during the session, uh, whenever things aren't quite so busy and, and the staff have time to, to really sit down and talk to you. Um, also, along with that, the night before on, on January 31st, we're going to be holding a, an advocacy lab workshop uh, here in Austin. Uh, we're kind of limiting the number of participants for that, but we're still getting uh, interest from folks. So definitely contact me if you're interested and want to sign up. What that entails is we're going to have some speakers come in and talk to you. Um, just kind of generally explain how to talk to legislators about our issues, how to be a good witness if you're going to testify before hearing. We're always looking for witnesses. If, if there's a, a bill coming up and we need someone to come in and, and give a practitioner's perspective on how this bill would actually affect them. Uh, that goes a lot further than, you know, just me, some guy in Austin getting up and talking about it. They care a lot more about hearing from y'all. Um, so we're going to teach you how to do all that. We're going to have some coaching on that kind of thing. Um, I think it's going to be a really good program. And, and we're looking to get about 25, 30 people. We already have a room block set up at the Doubletree Hotel next to the Capitol. So uh, contact me and I can get you all that info and, and get you signed up to, to be a part of that. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain this process to us. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. If you have any topics you would like covered on this podcast or would like to nominate a guest, please email me at awood at tvma.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a colleague and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. A like, a share, a retweet, these are all great ways that you can support TVMA that won't cost you a dime. I'm your host, Audrea Wood. Thanks for listening.